0: friends, get informed, and get involved.
1: It's We Are Not Cattle Radio. That's right, everybody. Welcome to We Are Not Cattle Radio. And if you didn't notice, that is the old intro music from almost two years ago. And there is some significance to that. And uh, once again, welcome to Re-Ironite Cattle Radio. I am your host, Jake Count, coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia, every Tuesday and Thursday night. And that will be changing as well. So it is the eighth day of April 2014, and I have with on the line uh, Rick Staggenbord from, let's see, what's the best way to describe you, man? I guess um, you're a friend of the show now, right? So uh, Yeah, I'm from planet Earth. Yeah, there we go. Okay. <clears throat> Some people would question now that but I can show my birth certificate, <laughs> uh, the real one. <laughs> yeah, or you could, you know, you could be like Karen Utes and and say that everybody in the Vatican has coneheads. So <laughs> it's unbelievable. This this entire planet with crazy people running around, disinfo agents everywhere, trying to incite divide and conquer strategies. It uh, gets a little. Old. But anyway. Well, before we get to – I got Rick on the show tonight. Um, We're going to cover the waterfront. We're actually going to cover some pharmaceutical stuff, which I talked about last show. So first off, let me apologize to everybody for the last show that I did last Thursday. What, um, What happened was evidently a glitch in blog talk radio, and it only happened to me and four other people. But we all experienced the same thing. So if you tried to listen, you heard me skip around for a little bit. And I'm kind of disappointed because it was one of my better shows. But, um, you know, all that being aside, I will be moving uh, the, the – this month and will be – Um, I will still have my archives at Blog Talk Radio, so you guys will be able to find me there. But uh, I will not be running live shows through them. I'll be running them through Liberty Movement Radio, and it will be on Thursday night, uh, same time, 9 o'clock. And then uh, Sunday in the morning, and I haven't figured out what time, whether it's going to be 11 or 10. So look for that schedule change coming up. I'll tweet it out. I'll, um, I'll put it all over Facebook. I'll put it all over my stuff. So anyway, that's all the housekeeping I've got. Um, Rick, what has been going on with you, man? How's, how's, how's life out there? And um, now you guys are in Oregon, right? Yes, yes. we are. How, how's life out there? Well, things are going pretty good. Uh, As you know,
0: one of my big issues is a constitutional amendment Mm -hmm. to um, end corporate constitutional rights and reform campaign finance.
1: Whoops. The big misstep last week, right? uh, Well, I don't know. It depends on how you look at it.
0: Uh, After Citizens United, uh, most people went out and got drunk. They were so depressed. And I I, uh, went out and got drunk because I was celebrating. (laughs) I really figured that people would wake up and realize that the, the basic problem is... Is corruption of government by special interest money after Citizens United, but you know, even people who realize that it was a serious problem. I mean, eighty percent of people were were opposed to Citizens United, and a similar number now support, hoping that with this decision in McCutcheon, that uh, people are going to wake up and and or be reawakened or something and realize we're not going to solve any of these other problems until we solve
1: the problem of corruption of our government, ultimately by the banksters. Right, by banking, uh, big business, lobbyists, you name it. And then, um, and then it's up to us, the citizens, to hold these people accountable, which um, I think is becoming more of a groundswell now, whether it's on the right, left, whatever. I think the people are really starting to get the picture now that uh, that the way the economy is going, the way that um, the way that the culture is going, the society is going. This is all a microcosm of not being involved um, with your fellow humans and 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 your fellow ha- inhabitants of of the United States and, and sharing ideas with one another, not just attacking each other's ideas, but sharing and and understanding and having conversations and having dialogue and and coming up with newer ideas or you know take a little bit of this idea and sprinkle in a little bit of that. But I think we get so locked into our ideology that we really do run into some some real big challenges. So the one thing I wanted to get into tonight um, that I covered on the last show, and i don't want to you know keep going back on that. but the one thing that I did want to cover is um, is we have climate change as one of my one of my issues that I wanted to cover tonight, and um, I don't know where you stand on this, Rick, but I have my stances on it for for many reasons, multitude of reasons. And I also want to cover the, the idea of big pharma. And, and let me say this before we get into either one of those topics. I want to be upfront and honest with everybody. I'm not going to sit here and slam big pharma because it's the trendy, hip thing to do. Because let's face it, these pharmaceutical companies, as bad as they can be at some times, they have made drugs and created drugs that have saved people's lives. They've saved my life. They've saved my wife's life. So I don't want to go on this ideal or this uh, this proverbial high horse stating that, that Big Pharma is out to destroy us all and Obamacare is going to destroy us all because it's really not the case. The only thing that will come of these things, if they start taking advantage, because it is a capitalist system and that's one of the things that's going to happen, is exploitation, but typically in a – a free market system or a system that has not only regulations but allows the free market to kick these interests out or kick these bad the bad seeds out, much like you saw with what happened at Mt. Gox in the Bitcoin industry. That was a true free market en- enterprise in the fact that Mt. Gox was cheating people. And so what happened? The entire system didn't collapse; it just kicked out the the really bad cog in the wheel, and everything kind of chugged along. Now, obviously, big pharma is a little bit different, and we call it big pharma for a reason. And I I put in the show notes that that Americans have this idea, and we're gonna I guess we'll start with this topic first, Rick, and then get your take on it. You have a lot more training in this area than I do, but there is an idea, and and this may be just me and my inner circle and my dwellings and my uh, interaction with other human beings on, in, um, in my life. But we have this idea in America that there's a pill for that. You know, <laughs> if, I've got, if I've got heartburn, there's a pill for that. If I feel like, you know, if I'm a little tired, there's a pill for that. Or if I feel like I might go off and, you know, do something harmful to somebody else, there's a pill for that too. So we run into this system or this idea that eventually that everything's going to have a fix. And Americans are always in for the quick fix, and the quick fix, as we all know, would be, hey, got some kidney issues? Pop a pill. Hey, you got some stomach issues? Pop this pill. And then by the time you know it, you're taking three or four pills, and then you fed into the system, which I talked about before, which allows these corporations to get so big and then take advantage of the people that really would benefit from them if we kept them under somewhat tighter scrutiny. So after that big, long diatribe, Mr. Rick... (laughs) Let's get a little bit of background on who you are, where you come from, and then let's get your thoughts on one, on my just on my statements right there about um, the pharmaceutical industry in general. Well,
0: I'm a uh, former VA psychiatrist, and as a psychiatrist, I have a a special take on the pharmaceutical industry because it really, uh, you know, it dominates the medical profession in general, but in psychiatry, it is absolutely out of control. So you may not want to slam the pharmaceutical industry. I'll happily do that for you. No, believe me, there is.
1: <laughs> I do want people to, to think with you know to think of both sides of the situation because not everything is not everything. It's not always black and white, but there are some, there are some going to be some very good cases like what you were talking about in the in the psych world that are um, that are very prevalent and they're contributing to a, a, a couple of the factors. But continue. Sure.
0: Well. Um- First of all, uh, obviously, we all want to have drugs for conditions where you have to, have to treat them with medications you know, genetic conditions, things like that, uh, or, you know, things that we do to ourselves sometimes, too, because we are human, and people smoke, people get depressed, do things that make themselves depressed, they get overweight, they, all kinds of problems, and, and a lot of drugs can be helpful for those of us who are too weak to, to take care of those things by diet, exercise, proper habits, and whatnot. Now, I think, you know, some people will say, well, you can't afford universal health care because drugs are so expensive, and that's one reason they have such a big problem with the, um, with the pharmaceutical industry. It's possible to set up a system where, where the only pharmaceuticals that would be approved are ones that have some redeeming social value, some medical value, um, and not just a monetary value when the whole pharmaceutical industry is, is nothing but a cash cow for people that don't know where else to put their money, um, they end up profiting off the misery of other people, and taxpayers pay for it. Um, insurance uh, 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 policyholders pay for it. Mm-hmm. All of us pay for it because they're just ripping us off right and left. Mm-hmm. A good example is Medicare. People say, oh, we can't have universal health care because we, Medicare's got – uh, problems. I actually heard a so-called liberal congressman say that. Uh, Medicare is so expensive we can't give it to everybody. Well, <laughs> let's fix Medicare first, and then let's give it to everybody because it's actually something like that anyway. Sure. Is that actually the only way that you're going to have universal health care, without universal health care, you're not going to have any health care system. I think we talked about this on our last show. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to go into that in depth, but there's all kinds of information people can find. Best single source is Physicians for National Health Program at their website pnhp.org. Uh, so I won't belabor the point, but let's just say that um, one the, the problem with with Medicare Part D is that when it was passed in 2003, there was a ban placed on negotiating drug prices from these from Big Pharma by the government for Medicare drugs. That's an incredibly outrageous statement about the corruption in government. Uh, And things are no better now uh, after McCutcheon and after Citizens United. Obviously, they're not any better now than they were in
1: 2003.
0: Right. Um, I actually ran against the... um, The uh, senator who cast the deciding vote for Medicare Modernization Act Mm -hmm. that uh, gave us Part D, I ran against him for the U.S. Senate in 2010, and that was one of the reasons. I mean, when when that's back then, the Democratic Party actually tried to stand against this because it was an unfunded mandate, Mm -hmm. and it was absolutely outrageous that the pharmacy industry could charge whatever they wanted. This Democrat uh, crossed party lines to vote for it in. in, uh, Cast the deciding vote, and when uh, when he was asked by a reporter, "Why did you do that?" he said, "Well, it's the best we can do." And so when I ran uh, against him in 2010, I said, "We
1: can do better." Right? Isn't that the old? <laughs> not the ultimate cop out? Though it's like, oh, this is the best deal that we could strike. You know, we've heard that from everything and and every branch of in every branch of government. And and so far, it's becoming more and more of a, a broken record in Washington currently. That, um, that all these things that we're running into with campaign finance and all these other different reforms that they're making, and I remember uh, I was reading actually an article um, earlier talking about how Barack Obama relinquished the taxpayers, um, I guess, their ability to or our necessity to pay for the conventions, which on paper sounds like it's a really good idea, right? So the I remember that <laughs> taxpayers aren't on the aren't on the um, we aren't on the. Uh, Uh, I guess on the dole so we can go buy more tanks or weapons or whatever we want to do. So we're not on the dole for paying for either one of the parties to run their little conventions. But then again, if you think about, once again, the other side of the coin, what does that bring? Well, that brings big business like you were talking about. That brings big business back in. So what's going to happen? Well, they're going to contribute to these things, and they're going to come in there, and they're going to have their handouts as well. So they're going to come in and you know offer their money up with you know some sympathies on the back end. and typically that's how deals are done in Washington. And Washington's turning in more t- into a, a a place, a centralization of power where people can go to to get business deals done. It's no longer about the people anymore. and I think that you and I can really uh, that's where you and I talked a lot about before is that um, we can unite along a lot of fronts from from both political factions, but one of the things that we have to realize is that Washington has become a breeding ground for, 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 for capitalism. and that's really all that we're seeing is crony capitalism, whether you call it fascism, whether you call it socialism, whatever you call it, it's, it's in a mixture of corporate and governmental structures to create, to create one um, deciding entity. And that is, um, that is never good, um, no matter which history book you read. So. Absolutely.
0: Uh, one uh, clarification. What Obama said was that they wouldn't accept corporate donations to pay for the Democratic um, convention. Uh, what they meant was they wouldn't take money. Oh. They actually, they actually took in-kind contributions, so it's the same difference. And besides the the money that they have, where did it come from in the first place? I mean, it's it's, it's very disingenuous. Mm-hmm. So uh, they're
1: slick. They can they can make it something sound great, can't they? Yeah. Well, you know the thing is when
0: uh when we say that um uh well, what was I going to say I, I lost it it was a point you brought up earlier okay. um anyway the, like you said it's it's both parties Um, are both part of the system. And so when they say that it's the best we can do, this legislation or that legislation, what they're not telling us, but we should be able to figure out for ourselves, is the reason it's the best they can do is because they put the corporate interests over ours every frickin' time they're in conflict. So when Wyden said, oh, the best we could do was let the pharmacy industry dictate its own prices under Medicare Part D, what he meant was,
1: we can't screw with those guys because they're
0: big campaign
1: donors. That's so, <laughs> the underlying and, – and once you start learning politics, especially from this kind of um, pragmatic stance like you're talking about, when you hear what they're saying, there is – just like you said, um, let me speak in code for you. Um, we, can't ste- we can't bite the hand that feeds us, basically. If we mm-hmm. do this, then we've already got agreements with these people that we'll go in and we'll push this bill and we'll make this thing happen. So I think that that's um, one of the things that we can really rally around. Now here is, um, let's talk about it a little bit further. So we've had, we've had some mass shootings over the years, and almost every one of these mass shootings is tied to a psychotropic or um, psychiatric drug, whether it's, um, whether it's a, a combination of Ambien, you know, you name it. You name it, mostly serotonin reuptake inhibitors are involved in these issues. Now, a lot of people get excited and get scared when they hear mass shootings and they talk about the frequency of it. And um, I was just laying down a few stats to my father that he thought were pretty funny. Um, uh, The the largest number of mass shootings or, excuse me, mass deaths that we've had from from shooters or what they consider mass shootings was around 170 per year. Now, honeybees in uh, North America kill about 200 people a year. Deer jumping in front of cars kill about 400. So, in essence, we should really line the fences with, uh, with assault rifles so that we can stop the deer because the deer are actually a bigger problem than these, than these people going on mass shooting sprees. And the majority of them are gang members shooting at each other. Not to say that it doesn't happen where you've got a guy that goes off the rails like what happened over at Fort Hood, which seems like a, a breeding ground for these people. But let's, let's talk about that briefly, and let's talk about the, the, um, the unfortunate issue of the, of the troops themselves not getting, um, not getting the respect from, from the citizens, I believe. I think that that's the real problem, is that when they say support the troops, it's like you've got to go up there and pat their back. Well, s- troops are committing suicide at 22 a day, so should we really be patting their back, or should we really be taking them in and say, what can we do to help you guys out? Because obviously they're struggling when they come back from when they come back from these wars. They're struggling to find jobs. They're, tru- they're struggling to to reassemble back into society. And after World War II, if if anybody reads history, that was a very big assimilation too. You know, trying to get back into the society, trying to get back to the societal norms. And you have people doing two and three tours. It makes it very very difficult. Um, Rick, what is your take on on all of that? Just stuff that I just spewed all over you right there. <laughs> Well, it's interesting. I was just thinking about it
0: this morning. Actually, we're in the middle of the 40th anniversary celebration of the Vietnam War, where they're rewriting history and telling us what a noble enterprise it was, noble and what morning. and what heroes these draftees were who were forced to go and kill or be killed, and some of the consequences. An entire generation was wasted, and we learned nothing from it. Or we wouldn't have put up with the uh, with the two invasions of Iraq, uh, let alone everything else that's going on. So what are they doing? They're 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 making this to be some sort of grand heroic enterprise. Vietnam, for God's sake, is that what we learn from Vietnam? I think it's absolutely atrocious. And so you have all these people who. Confuse supporting the military, or excuse me, supporting the troops in the military, with supporting whatever wars the government decides to, to put these kids in, mm-hmm. um, and and so by glorifying war, people think back to their own war experiences maybe or their experiences in the military. Really, I think war is a lot more popular with people who've never been in it, mm-hmm. uh, even if, especially if they have been in the military but never had to face combat. At any rate, uh, the people that still support war after everything—they unless they were in Iraq or Afghanistan—they don't have a freaking clue what these kids are going through, because they didn't serve two to six tours. And most of these kids have served multiple tours, and you are never—it's it, kind of like Vietnam in that you are never really out of—you uh, uh, never um, what am I trying to say? You're never safe. Uh, you're, you're always. You're always subject to assault, whether even if you're in a forward operating base. You know, there's there's missile attacks, um, <clears throat> or rocket attacks, whatever, uh, howitzer uh, how attacks, uh, not uncommonly. And every time you go outside the wire, you're you're you could be attacked at any time. Even Vietnam wasn't that dangerous uh, in a lot, a lot of places at a lot of times, and most people served only a single tour in Vietnam. So, so those people say, you know, there actually are people who served in Vietnam in combat who still think war is a wonderful idea. Um, not many, thank God, I don't think. I haven't met very many. Um, <clears throat> but they don't have a clue what's going on, let alone people who never saw combat not having a clue because they didn't go back for a second, third, fourth, fifth tour. The incidence of post-traumatic stress disorder uh, goes up substantially in, in subsequent tours. Uh, I, I, don't, I can't give you statistics, but we know this. It was also true uh, in Vietnam. Uh, but there it was more of a self-selected population because very few people did agree to go back for a second tour, unless they were careerists, and the ones that did were pretty screwed up to begin with. Um, so, but now we're, we're seeing people, you know, because they're having trouble uh, making their quotas, we're seeing people that don't want to leave because they don't want to leave their buddies behind because they know nobody's going to take their place. So, uh, and then of course, on top of that, their stop loss, which I understand is still going on. I didn't know that, but, um, they're having trouble with their quotas again. And now with threats to attack Syria and the possibility might get involved in Ukraine. um, I have a feeling they're going to have more trouble than ever recruiting. Um, so uh, I, I, hopefully that means that we're not going to invade any other countries, but it's, it's just hard to tell because
1: the neocons are insane. They're out of control. Man, they, they did a great job in the University of Chicago brainwashing all these people to think that that's a Republican value to go to war and, and preemptive wars and strike and all that good stuff. That is just an absolutely – if you ever study neoconservatism coming out of the um, uh, Chicago – that will really kind of turn your stomach because that's where the majority of these guys come from. And it's a, it's a similar product to Barack Obama and his foreign policy as well. So you see it. Well, I would I would
0: say that uh, Barack, uh, Barack Obama's foreign policy is neocon. Sure. It has nothing to do with conservative or liberal, not that Obama's a liberal. Label. Mm-hmm. That's why they call it neocon because it's not conservative. Sure. Um and also I, I didn't realize that most of that came out of the Chicago school because the Chicago School of Economics was the home of neoliberalism mm-hmm. which is not liberal. Um, both of these, as I said, I think on a previous show are two sides of the same coin, which is neo fascism. Yep. Well, it's interesting that both schools started at at Chicago. I didn't realize that.
1: Well, and it's really interesting when you when you look at the the way that you were talking about war is, is very, very profound. Um, even, even I just pulled this up because I was reading this the other day, and I thought it was great that uh, the Washington Post, and I'm sure you probably saw this as well. Uh, the headline reads that um, the less Americans know about the Ukraine's location, the more they want to intervene. <laughs> I mean, does it not like really encapsulate what we're dealing with here? Is that that people that want to for some reason um for some reason they they have gotten sold into the idea and um shoot maybe it was the guys from south park that really sold it to america that team america the world police whatever they saw this coming 10 years ago made a puppeteer movie about how crazy it was and now we're really living it as well as idiocracy and a couple of other f- films but but it just goes to show you that people just want to go with the status quo and just go with something because some authority figure told them to. And that's why – and I was thinking about the discussion that you and I had when I, when I called the neoliberals authoritarians, and the reason that I used that term is because an authoritarian likes to be the authority figure. they and I didn't mean like authoritarians like the Nazis, just to clarify. I meant authoritarians in, in the fact that they would like to pose as the authority, but that's turning into almost everybody now, where they would like to pose as the authority. We're the experts on this. You guys don't know what's going on in Washington. I was listening to that Rumsfeld clip that was um, about 9/11, where he talks about how we're not ready, and everybody in America just thinks that we're never going to get attacked, and you know you'll see one of these days we're going to get attacked, and then and then everybody will rally around again, and then they'll calm down and they'll they'll get attacked and they'll rally around again. Well, if you guys wouldn't go and stir up freaking foment rebellions in the Ukraine, if you wouldn't go over and arm Al Qaeda in Syria. In Libya and in Egypt, if you guys wouldn't do crazy stuff like this just to be war profiteers, then maybe we wouldn't have blowback. And I'm one of those guys that really does believe in blowback. I mean how many uh, – there was a statistic, and I God, I cannot remember where it came from. And it was – I think Ron Paul said it best where he said that – Every time you kill one of these, you know, so-called, you know, extremists over there. Every time that you kill one of them with a drone, you just created four or five more terrorists, mm-hmm. because all they're looking for is revenge. So, you know, not to get on that roller coaster very much, but when I was talking to my father about his tour in Vietnam, and this is kind of where it hit home for me, is that uh, he would. Sh- I-, I put together a nice picture book for him for uh, Christmas. He took a lot of photos over there. They were incredible. So I went through about 2,000 of his photos, put them together, and he would show like bullet holes on the side. And he was in a base that wasn't even near combat. It wasn't even – he said that you would just be hanging out and then all of a sudden you'd just start getting mortar shells. And you would just run to the bunker and everybody hang out for like 20 minutes and then it's over and then you just resume your day. So I think that the idea, like you were saying, is that people that are fantasizing about combat, fantasizing about empire and conquest, are the people that aren't on the front lines. I've, uh, I've talked to many retirees coming out of the military that, um, that wouldn't believe some of the stuff that they were telling me, that were talking about the, um, dealing with the contractors. That was the most enlightening portion of my conversation with them when I would talk to a helicopter pilot or a helicopter mechanic, and he says, I'm making $35,000 a year working for the U.S. Army. And then what happens is you look over to your left and there's a guy that just got out last year and he's back over there working for some, you know, for some corporate interest and he's making $120,000. So mm-hmm. the war doesn't stop; it just transfers. And then he says that they always try to come at you, hey, you're about to, uh, you're you're about to ready to reenlist. And he goes, and they almost make it so tempting that you can't walk away. And it's like you said, I wonder if most of these guys, or I'm sure some of them, love it just for the combat. But some of them love it, like like you said. It's it's always wars are never fought about countries. It's always fought about the guy that's standing next to you. That's mm-hmm. what war is. The war is about your fellow brethren that's going into battle and conquest with you. So what do you have? Well, that's that's
0: the way it is when you're in the military. When you're a mercenary, it's not necessarily the case. Correct. I, th- I think there's a much higher rate of psychopathy uh, among people who are mercenaries, people who work for Z or whatever. They're 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 putting their bodies on the line and murdering people for money, for profit. Right. Right. Now, some of those people still believe in the cause. They're that stupid, um, but they, they, they'd rather do it for more money. I understand that. If they're brainwashed into still believing in the cause, not realizing that they're fighting for corporate empire, um, then I don't blame them for taking the extra money. They think they're doing the same job. I met a SEAL. Mm-hmm. who actually, um, I believe he retired. He was a um, fairly high-ranking NCO. Met him in a parking lot, and uh, he told me he just just got out, and <laughs> he said he's joining Blackwater. It was still Blackwater back then. Right. And I'm like, holy crap, you know. I mean, here's a guy I, I, was, I felt such uh, uh, you know, uh, admiration for his dedication to begin with, mm-hmm. even though I, I felt he was brainwashed. Sure. Uh, but then he tells me, "Oh, now I'm going to go back and make a whole bunch of money using my skills." You know that it it really says a lot about modern warfare is that the only skills that you learn um, are, are how to be a mercenary. You know, people come out of the military now; they're promised an education. They're so screwed up they can't even go to school. They have no. Uh, the, the, the civilian world has no use for the the skills they learn in the military for the most part. Uh, there's no private nuclear submarines. There's no, you know, private uh, uh, fighter jets. There's no. Well, actually, there are because Blackwater has private fighter jets. <laughs>
1: no I was about to say. Well, it depends on the, <laughs> <laughs> what the private is. But yeah. But anyway,
0: I mean, uh, yeah, the, the whole thing's sick. You know, people though that support war. I don't. I don't know. I, I'm hard pressed to imagine it, very many people. Support war because they believe in uh, American empire. Most people don't believe that we are an empire. They just fall for whatever excuse they're given. Humanitarian intervention. There you go. Right. Yeah. In Libya, and so what do we do? We kill 10,000 people with our bombs to save them. Didn't we learn anything from uh, burn the village to, to save it? I mean, you know, it's the exact same thing we did in Vietnam, only on a much larger scale. It's mass murder. The the, the country is in chaos, and nobody seems to care about anything other than the fact that one of our CIA operatives, so-called Ambassador uh, Stevens, was murdered for his trouble. Well, fuck. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, I I think he got exactly what he deserved. The son of a bitch may rot in hell.
1: Well, if he was the one really trafficking those arms then then by all means he knew what he was doing you know he knew he knew what was going on it, it wasn't just him but in all likelihood he
0: was in the very middle of it
1: yeah sure I mean if he, if you he into an, well anyway we can get off on a big wrap <laughs> I mean if we're talking about the real empire but that, I mean that's that's beside the point point. and I think that you know bringing this full circle when we talk about supporting the troops that's what we should be talking about: is helping these people, re, once again, reassemble back into society, and mm-hmm. um, and getting them the treatment that they need, not just giving throwing pharmaceuticals at them. And that's where this whole, you know, that's where this whole um, conversation began: was the pharmaceutical industry. And like you said, you saw the abuse of the system. Is it is it really that um, is it really that overt when you're talking about the the industry of psychiatry where especially if you were dealing with somebody with PTSD, that, that they're typically going to load them up with um, SSRIs and things like that to try to get them to, to stabilize or give them some semblance of normalcy. What would what would you say if, if you had somebody that came in? Obviously, you're not practicing right now, so we're not going to hold you anything. So what would you say if somebody came in and said, I have PTSD, what would you recommend for me?
0: Well, first of all, people don't tell me whether they have PTSD, Um, I have to diagnose it. Now, I look at their specific symptoms, and there are some symptoms that really do better with medications. Okay. But I always let them know their options, and I always offer psychotherapy because I think psychotherapy is the gold standard.
1: Okay. Um,
0: Sometimes without medications, they can't get to the point where they can benefit from psychotherapy very easily, although there are some newer techniques that are showing a lot of promise, like uh, emotional freedom technique. And um, what what is the emotional
1: freedom
0: technique uh well i, I can't define it has been a while since I did any uh looked at it but there's a specific um, let's see i I can't remember if that's a class of techniques or one of the specific techniques there, there's a class of of techniques and and um we don't really understand how they work there's some theories I don't want to get into that but there's just one's very simple it it involves just literally tapping. Uh, on different parts of the body while going through some of these traumatic memories mm-hmm. and somehow uh, the process of doing that um, decouples the uh, the traumatic response the stress response from from uh, from the memory uh, and it's remarkably successful when it's done right I
1: never was trained in it I learned about it after I got out after I uh,
0: Resigned from the VA to run for the Senate.
1: So was it, it was it something that's like a um, almost like misdirection of the mind? Then, so you would have them recall some of these challenges, and then you would misdirect them by tapping on certain areas to kind of um, to kind of I guess decouple the the two uh, the emotion and the experience together. Well, that's that's a you know one not possibility I guess for how you could explain it, but um,
0: it's I. I have a psychology background. I didn't just go to medical school cold. Um and I'm not sure that it would really work that way. Okay. But the the people that are promoting it, um the the idea that they promote is that somehow you're um you're uh, redirecting energy fields. Oh. So yeah. it's kind of uh, you know, new age, I guess. Yeah, it's kind of a new age explanation, although, you know, they're they're, they're developing evidence. But the evidence that it works is, is pretty impressive. Um, so I'd like to see them do that at the VA rather than the trauma-based therapies they use uh, where people have to relive their memories uh, and, for the most part, um, just gut it out until they extinguish the response by habituation, they call it. Uh, it's it's very traumatic. A lot of people drop out. Right. Um, and it's... Another option that people do, and this is what I mostly did because I was mostly working with Vietnam vets. who'd been dealing with this for thirty and and more years when, by the time I saw them uh, we we just didn't didn't go into the trauma. Um, we talked about what was going on in their current life and how they deal with that, and so it was a different way of focusing I mean after thirty plus years, it didn't seem to make sense to me to dredge it all up and try to get them to work through it. Uh, when they tried to do that right after they came back, it was so difficult for them. they never you know they dropped out of treatment for twenty thirty years or whatever when they come back all that all that's offered to them is drugs are more of the same so i I tried to offer them something different, and i think I think I had a lot of success doing that. but I still use medications um, mm-hmm. on the other hand, we're finding out that some of the things that we thought were quite safe have side effects we didn't know about okay. Uh, we talked, about you talked about SSRIs before. I don't know. I don't. I, I don't know for a fact that most of the mass murders uh, have been people on SSRIs. There've been claims like that forever. Sure. Uh, the Scientologists, you know, try to make it sound like every time anybody was on a, a medication and an SSRI or any kind of antidepressant mm-hmm. and went off the deep end, it was because of the drug. Well, you know, people.
1: Uh, correlation. Were men- and correlation doesn't equal causation.
0: So. Exactly, and especially because it's a it's it's not a random population. It's a population of people who are deeply deeply enough troubled that they think they need medications. Sure. and some of them uh, definitely benefit. You know, the uh, the effects aren't nearly as strong as the drug companies try to tell us, and the side effects are actually substantially worse. Mm-hmm. Um, so that the risk benefit uh, ratio, uh, if you really want to explain it to the patient, it's it's not the way that we're taught to explain it. Right. You know, you know, it's it's very, definitely very slanted. Uh, we're taught in psychiatry, oh, you know, if you don't take this, you're, your depression is likely to become chronic, and even after you recover, you're ten times as likely to, well, okay, I, I don't remember the exact numbers. <laughs> you're, you're twice as likely to uh, experience a relapse in the first three years,
1: say. That's, you guys that's, use, that's pretty realistic. you guys use the fear, uncertainty, and doubt? sales technique to sell people on the pharmaceuticals or at least from that perspective
0: well if it was true right if it was true that's that's valuable information but i think it it overstates the case and it doesn't take into account that you can get sometimes get the same benefits without medication and they're much more reliable and they're much more long-lasting right you should never give
1: medications without psychotherapy or you may foster that kind of dependence i've I've actually had experiences with a couple of close friends of mine that have um that have gone to for um um that I'm not mentioning names so you guys will be just fine <laughs> but uh, they would go to um they would go to a psychiatrist for bipolar disorder so they went and um within the first they said the first session they got one round of pills the second session they got another one they got another one and i was and and finally they just said. Well, I just kind of stopped because every time I'd go there, they'd just give me another pill and say, this should fix it, this should fix it, should fix it. I'm like, well, sh-. I'm like, well, damn, I can do that. Just give me a whole line of them back in the back, and we'll just say, which one have we tried? The green ones? All right, we'll give them the blue ones, see if that fixes it. But, um, you know, it, it, it kind of speaks to what you're saying, and, and it also speaks to the, the medication in society in general. Now, um, let's let's take it back a step further. Um, with everything that we have in our drinking water, with the with the runoffs of these pharmaceutical medicines, and let's not kid ourselves, most people when they decide to stop taking some of these SSRIs or mind-altering drugs, whatever they are, whether it's something like Ambien to help you get sleep, the, the gut reaction for most people, because I guess they've seen it on TV enough, is that they're going to just, I'm going to flush these down the toilet. Well, that's a great idea, but guess what? Now you just infested that stuff into our drinking water because it's going to get recycled eventually and we can't take all of that stuff out of the water. So what would you... I mean, I don't know how much study you've done into water fluoridation and, um, and also runoffs and things like that, but do you think that that has a... Um, just to let you know that... that uh, I'm sure you, you're well aware of this, but um, fluoride does have negative effects on, on brain function. It also has negative effects on uh, being able to focus but um, they haven't really pinpointed it because the Chinese studies say it drops to like 15 points. The Canadian study said it drops to IQ 10 points. But either way, we're working off of some kind of detriment and with uh, hydrofluorosilicic acid in drinking water. So in essence, we're all being medicated to a certain extent. Do you think that that's a reason that some people can't break through and listen to some of these issues that we're trying to break up and, and espouse to people and have conversations about? Do you think that that might be... One of the issues that we're dealing with, or is that just me um, playing Mr. Conspiracy Theory? You mean because they, their brains have been affected by fluoride? Is that what you mean? Fluoride, um, any kind of uh, um, any kind of um, runoff from from um, from highly um, highly toxic like pesticides and things like that, because those get into the drinking water as well. Anytime you put something into the water table, it's going to be extracted eventually for our drinking water because one of the things that we're running into is that we're running out of drinking water, and that's supposedly one of the big challenges in the next five to 10 years is the lack of food and the lack of drinking water, which reminds me, i got to get to my article here in a minute, but go. what do you you think of that? I mean, is that just me being overly paranoid or is that to have some grounds in uh, reality?
0: Well, I don't know. I haven't reviewed the literature on fluoride, um, but I hear about a lot of uh, possible health effects that it has from people I respect, like you, who have looked at the literature, so I wouldn't say you're paranoid at all. As far as the drugs, um, the only ones I'm aware of that probably have uh, a notable physiological effect are the hormones. The the hormones are are really bad. Uh, There's hormones in so many different uh, foods kids are exposed to, and uh, a lot of uh, drugs have hormones in them and food waste products, and they get into the water supply, probably from what I've read, in concentrations high enough to have biological effects. So, then you have things like PBAs. BPA uh, and stuff like that. Uh, B, BPA, right, sorry. That's okay. Yeah, BPA, um, and uh, I have a guy on my show, Kevin Galilei, who believes that uh, BPAs in fluoride are deliberately introduced into the water supply because they affect fertility. Uh, we know that
1: BPA has hormonal effects. I haven't read the literature on whether fluoride does or not. but It has a sterility effects in, in larger quantities, yes.
0: Yeah, his, his, his uh, research has led him to the idea that this is a deliberate form of population control because the people who think about things in global terms know that we're already well past a sustainable population. And because we won't voluntarily control our population, they figure it's their job to, uh, he says, uh, they figure it's their job to control the population without our knowing.
1: Well, that's what the Club of Rome said. They're like, well, you guys don't voluntarily control this stuff, so a death rate solution must be implemented. So, we can't control ourselves from a birth rate standpoint like what you and I – you and I talked about this as well. Um, but, um, yeah, so it's, it's interesting to see how all of this stuff kind of ties in together with society and societal norms because, you know, a lot of people wouldn't even admit that there is something wrong with their water because they're going to go to their tap. They're going to, you know, turn their water on. It's going to be clear. And then they're going to, you know, filter it through um, their little Brita filter or whatever and they're going to feel like they're getting good clean water when that's typically not the case because you have you have microcells that can go through all kinds of other different things that can cause havoc with your brain, cause havoc with your endocrine or your um with your with your bones, um with your gut, with your kidneys, all kinds of different challenges. So um, needless to say everybody, fluoride um, filter your water please and use the ProPure Pro1 water filters. I am not paid by them. But I tell you what, that is the best-tasting drinking water I have ever had when I use my ProPure. So there you go. That's a, a plug for, I guess, um, mental cognition and mental awareness. And be sure that uh, Josh Wiley is on the show quite a bit. This will tell you a little bit about his due diligence, Rick. He actually went down to the local facility that bottles his bottled water to make sure that they weren't adding fluoride to it. He took. All right. <laughs> I was like, "That's a little." Boring. He's like, "Well, I got to make sure I'm not getting poisoned." I said, "Well, that's a very, very good point." So after all of the after all of the drug talk, let's move on to something that I have never even picked your brain on. So, um, climate change. Obviously, there is um, there are human effects to climate. There are human effects to to um, to the Earth in general to our habitat. So the World Bank. Um, this was. Um, God, this was last week, so it was last Thursday when I covered this, I got very, very upset because if anybody has read a lot of the same books that I've read, and I'm not trying to toot my own horn here, but you are going to notice some very, very similar statements to what I've said on my show before. And so I'm looking for this, Um, Bill, uh, or yeah, Rick, sorry, I don't know what, I just looked at Bill. Um, Rick, can you um, what What are your thoughts on um, on climate change? Um, well, I'm not an
0: expert on it at all. I can't quote statistics. I keep seeing people claiming that we're in a cooling trend. I haven't seen the data on that. Okay. Um, I do know we're in a longer term warming trend. Mm-hmm. We set you know records for high average temperatures uh, globally. Mm-hmm. Uh, for decades, sure. and that there's a correlation between that and CO2 concentration and other greenhouse gases. Okay. That there's a, a consensus of uh, of uh, <clears throat> global, uh, excuse me, environmental scientists that this is uh, uh, this correlation is real. It's causing global warming. Mm-hmm. Um, that is again average uh, temperature. Uh, of course, we're seeing climate extremes, and so uh, the preferred term is global climate instability. Uh. But but if you look around, the, the, the evidence is obvious. I mean, we're seeing um, mass melting in both polar ice caps, mm-hmm. Greenland. Uh, the snows of Kilimanjaro there for centuries have disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um, Glacier National Park I visited in 2010 has essentially no glaciers anymore on the American side. Uh, just anywhere you look California is in record drought look at Lake Mead it's like 30 feet down below normal mm-hmm. um, I mean and then then you have all these super storms um, the the number of storms is going up uh, dramatically of, of super powerful storms is going up dramatically uh, that would make sense when you're seeing these tremendous temperature um, variations mm-hmm. Uh, that we we haven't seen before in modern history, so I mean it, all, it the story makes sense to me I'm not a climate scientist i can't I can't counter every little fine argument, but I do know that the whole idea that climate change uh, or climate climatologists, climate scientists who are pushing this idea that uh, that we should be concerned about global climate change are not being paid by the oil industry, and a lot of the, the uh, few mm-hmm. who are arguing with them are. Mm-hmm. So you've got to follow the money. You've always got to follow the money. The idea that these people are getting rich promoting uh, uh, climate change theory is <laughs> just incredible well, when, you look, when you look at how the oil industry is paying off the other side.
1: Well, here's what happens, and this is why I will always err on the side of caution and say exactly what you said. I've done my research, I've done my due diligence, but I am by no means an expert and I do have my I do have my issues with some of the things that 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 um the the so called experts say just because when you read the writings of what people wrote hundred or not even a hundred, but like seventy five years ago and fifty years ago they said that they were going to move to an energy based economy. They were gonna do away with fiat currency, they were gonna to move to an energy based resource economy. And the way that they were going to try to do it was through carbon and through carbon credits. And then they were going to back it with the SDR, and that came out a little bit later because you have to have something to back. The, excuse me. You're going to have to back the SDR, the standard drawing right, with something. And so their idea was we'll back it with carbon, which, once again, all of these things sound really great in theory. So here is what I, I understand to be correct in the climate change model. Number one, I don't know what the hell is going on. We'll just put it that way. Uh, temperatures go up, temperatures go down ice caps melt, they reform all of those things are very, very true whether the extremes are there or not I, once again, I'm like you I would like to see more more data but here's what I do know when the World Bank comes out and tells you something it is typically for an alternative motive now what I do know is that Al Gore and his partner, and his first name slips my mind, but his last name is Blood, and I've talked about them on my show very, a lot, and blood and gore actually own the carbon trading system that is handled out of the out of the royal bank in uh in england now barack obama and a couple of other guys here um george soros namely just a few of those actually have their hand in the carbon credit trading system here in america which if you were thinking long term is a really good strategy if you know that this thing is going to be implemented which it looks like it's going to be because the world bank is making some really interesting announcements and i'm going to read this article here and then i'll give you guys my take on 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 what's going on and once again not that i can be a climate scientist but um when they um when they do what are called um what is it the the peer reviewed or whatever they're called most of the time, those are the, typically the, the underwriters of the professors that are doing their peer reviews, and so the numbers can be skewed there as well. So once again, back to square one. I'm not one of those radio hosts that will tell you I know everything that's going on because this stuff is over my damn head. So do your own research. Formulate your own opinion. How dare you, How dare you be a free thinker? But uh, here's what it says. It says we're, Kim says that there are four areas in which the World Bank can help Satisfy, or excuse me, specif- specifically in the fight against global warming. Number one, finding a stable price for carbon. Number two, remo- removing fuel subsidies. That actually sounds like a good idea. Number three, investing in cleaner cities. And number four, the developing of climate-smart agri- climate agriculture. So all of these things sound very very good and he says improved access to clean water and sanitation is vital and he said a predictive tension of the world resources will result in from inaction over global warming now what i will tell you that this guy is full of you know what on is uh where he says that where he says that water and sanitation is vital and he protects tensions over the resources and will result from global warming well it won't result from global warming it'll result from people like george soros cutting people's water off in foreign countries and then extorting them and saying that they got to privatize their entire water supply that's the problem here you know when you have people like t-boone pickens that go and this is where i went on my diatribe rick so just hang in there with me when t-boone pickens goes and buys the largest aquifer in the entire united states and the way that he bought it was he bought the land in Texas, to where you could drill. And in Texas, they have this stupid law that if you can reach the water with your drill, then it's yours. So what he did is there's a huge aquifer that sits just underneath um, Oklahoma, Nevada, and I think it sits underneath Colorado as well. It's probably like half of the Midwest. And so he bought the real estate, and he's going to drill there to get to the water. And guess what? His little snarky climate, um, not climate, snarky, statement was to us. Remember, T. Boone Pickens made his billions in oil, just once again, one of the guys that you're talking about that's always coming up and saying that global warming's a myth and blah, blah, blah. So guess what he said? Well, he said that you think that water is a human right, get ready to pay for it. I disagree. <laughs> and he said that on record. So when I see things like this, this is, to me... This is a lot of high-tech propaganda to people that aren't paying attention to smaller segments with these global controllers that really do steer the planet. And there's only a couple hundred, maybe maybe a thousand of these guys that are the big players that can pull stuff like this. And you know, Alex Jones never mentions these people, but I'm going to have to bash Alex a little bit. If you would please tell your audience that the Bush family is worth like $70 billion and that they own the largest aquifer down in, um, down in South America and they're doing the exact same thing, look at what the super elite are doing. They're getting water. What do they think is coming? Well, I think that they know what's coming, and that is going to be a shift in the way that we do monetary policy, a shift in the way that we conduct business. And when they start talking about investing in cleaner cities, there was an article that came out today from the gentleman that had the Gaia theory, that first developed the Gaia theory, which sparked all this conversation about climate change. And he said that what's going to happen is that everybody is going to be forced to move into eco-friendly cities, a.k.a. Agenda 21 cities. Now, I don't know how much research you've done into all this stuff, Rick, but this stuff was like my bag for about two years and I thought, I thought for sure that we were going to get thrown into some six-by-six-cube jail cell and have to eat our you know, yearly ration of meat. But what do you make of everything that I just went through? And <laughs> You, you so, always say that after you go into six different things. I, I basically <laughs> comment it all over you and then just say, here, uh, what do you think of all that?
0: Well, for, I think the most importantly, we started talking about global climate change, and I know – think it's an either-or proposition. I think, obviously, there are profiteers who um, probably do believe it's real, and they intend to make a profit off it. And you, it sounded to me like you were confusing two different things, carbon taxes and uh, carbon credits. Mm -hmm. Uh, Carbon credit swaps, as far as I know, is what um, Al Gore has been said to be invested in. Um, and that's already a booming business in Europe which is one reason why um, some um, people who believe in climate change were against uh, a car- carbon uh, credits here in the United States. It just becomes another commodity
1: sure
0: and and then uh, people are you know uh, swapping and trading and betting on futures and it, 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 it just, here comes bitcoin exactly it's just crazy so I could understand the reticence to deal with carbon credits, I believe that we should have carbon taxes. So when you talk about a pr- the, the correct price on carbon, mm-hmm. that's a carbon tax. Sure. That's a completely different thing. They also have that in Europe, and it's actually working pretty well. Mm-hmm. You have to pay these externalized, instead of externalizing those costs, Where we mm-hmm. all have to pay for the cost of pollution, be it sure. uh, be it with global warming or acid rain or whatever, right. instead of just releasing all those toxins in the environment and making the public pay for the cost of that, uh, they, they calculate what they think the cost is to society in terms of the degradation of, of the infras- physical infrastructure, health problems, you name it, and cleaning up uh, spills of oil, whatever. They add all that together, and then they, um, they say, well, if you're going to, produce this much, you have to pay this much. Well,
1: that's the problem that I have with the system is that they never hold the corporations accountable for this stuff. It's always about us, the citizens. No, not necessarily.
0: I mean, properly done, it would be the corporations paying it also, although I know in Europe the citizens pay a carbon
1: tax on um, the stuff they, they throw out that can't be recycled. The top 50, the top 50 companies in the entire world produce more carbon emissions than the rest of the planet combined. So that should put us in the right direction. I would be all for a carbon credit, or excuse me, a carbon, excuse me, a carbon tax, as well as stabilizing the system. If you just went to China and said, Hey, what the hell are you guys doing over here? You owe the entire world like six trillion dollars. Or whatever, quadrillion, because all you do is pollute the planet right well, um you know
0: the problem is uh, well uh, there's more than one problem all, all we're all we're doing in the United States is is switching over to natural gas as much as we can because it's supposedly cleaner, well, it isn't cleaner when you count. Um, you know what the the cost of the carbon cost carbon footprint of fracking, sure. not to mention the fact that it's destroying the water supplies, which of course will drive up the stock of everybody's privatizing water. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so some- it, it it isn't enough to do that because we're also shipping that uh, LNG all over right. uh, the planet. But all it just it just means we can export more coal to China too. So that's what China gets where actually a lot of our military policy is designed at keeping China from getting uh, access to oil and natural gas in Africa, in the Middle East. Um, a lot of our policies are directed toward that. So they take what they can get. Now, what if instead we invest in a Manhattan Project to develop alternative energy conservation in the United States? Um, then... Then China, we'd really be holding them responsible. But no, we always say, "Oh, you go first. It won't yeah. do any good if we
1: don't." Whoa, 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 there's whoa, whoa. there's you want
0: us to invest money. Hold on, hold on. Wait a minute. What's our yeah, yeah? Some of that, some of that money we gave them in the bailout, they never used. You know, they have trillions and trillions of dollars just sitting there. It's it's actually being played in 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 the uh, the uh, Wall Street stock market casino, endangering the economy again when they could be investing in alternative energy, most importantly. But why don't they? Because the banks are the controlling interest in the um, six biggest oil companies in the world. They, are also, they also own controlling interest. Here's something that people really need to know. The top 143 corporate international corporations in the world control 40% of the assets and get 60% of the profits – from the top 43,000 international corporations. And that means that those banks whose boards of directors sit on each other's boards or interlocking boards of directors actually control entire industries, not just the oil industry. They, they control ins- the uh, insurance industry. I'm sure they control telecommunications. I haven't looked into it. It's hard to track this down, actually. But I'm sure they control telecommunications, yeah, they uh, media, uh, you know, one way or the other, either directly or indirectly, because they are the biggest players in the world. They're the ones that decide when we're going to war for natural resources. Right. They're, they're the ones that can corner uh,
1: metals markets and, uh, you know, and... and <laughs> Need I go on? No, no, no. You hit every every talking point like it was going out of style because um, that is exactly, and this is why it makes me so mad to see Karen Hudis do this stuff to herself. And, you know, God save me. If the Pope is from another planet, then I'll eat my hat. (laughs) That's exactly. I understand, lady. We're gonna go into overtime, everybody. Thanks for listening. Uh, be sure to check out the live feed at wearenotcattle.net. You will see the archive of the show. Thanks for listening, and we're going to tape the air. So anyway, I want to finish up with this, and, and then let you say your piece because uh, that was a really great, that was a really great diatribe right there. By the way, <laughs> it's one I should slip into every show. Absolutely, because um, that's exactly what Karen Huda has exposed when she was at the World Bank. She went through with a bunch of tech guys and found that about 40 – there was I think it was like four or five different little groups or pockets of people. I'll have to get the numbers right because I don't want to mislead anybody. But they controlled 45% of the world's assets, this little group of people. Controlled forty-five percent of the world's assets, and so when you look at the system like this, how do you tear the system down? How do we reverse the system? What do we do? And I think that that's a that's a um, that's a topic for a whole other show. But uh, I can I can summarize it for you very quickly. Uh, the 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 way they
0: have their power, the way they exercise their power, is by bribing politicians, particularly in the United States. So the real problem is corruption if we can make it harder for them to buy our politicians then we can take them on that's the only way
1: man and once you start researching in here um if i i'll show you when we go off air i'll show you a really great book to read that'll make you probably lose sleep at night but not you you're you're all used to this <laughs> but uh, anyway um in closing rick so we covered a little bit of everything we bounced around a little bit um What's, uh, what's front and center on your mind moving forward? Uh, what do you think people should pay attention to over the next uh, week or so to when we can have you on again?
0: Well, um, there's going to be – the movement to, to amend the Constitution is growing, and, and I just encourage people to think about the fact this is the central problem for the reason I just stated. Mm-hmm. Uh, the banks control the U.S. government. The U.S. government has the biggest uh, economy, And military in the world, and if we can break that their control over the U.S. government and uh, take back America for the people, then we have a chance to create the kind of world society that we want, and we have to think in global terms. Uh, be it because of global climate change or because of the limited uh, resources of the planet, the fact that we're uh, terribly overpopulated right now—these are global problems. We can't solve America's problems unless we take into account uh, the effect that the kind of society we want is going to have on the world.
1: Sure, and um, I would say that I would say that the the con the con con that's been going around—if that ever comes to fruition. Um, that might open up some really interesting dialogue because now now it's the people basically dictating what's going to go on. Of course, you might have the special interest in there whispering in somebody's ear, but I think that that would get everybody's attention. Or at least, I mean, if you've taken one damn history class in the entire history of your life and you say, wait a minute, the, the American government is going to have a constitutional convention – When's the last time we had one of those? Oh, never. Oh, <laughs> well, actually, actually we did. Oh, we had the first. Yeah, we. Had first. <laughs> I, well, my man Patrick Henry, and if you've never read about that guy, God, like I said, everybody, please read about that man. What an incredible dude he was. I mean, let me
0: let me just say something though. I'm not talking about a constitutional convention. Some people are. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's practical. I do support the people that are doing that work because they will bring the issue to the fore. Sure. But I think, I think the way it's going to happen is we will have to make support for a constitutional amendment, a uh, campaign issue in congressional elections. That's what I'm working on, and I think.
1: So you would state that, that we would go um, through the states in order to get the amendment passed, correct? No, no, through through Congress. Why would you go through Congress when we can when we could uh, initiate it at the state level and then and then take it and ratify it at Congress? I mean, no,
0: it, do, it doesn't work that way. The states ratify it either way.
1: Right. I mean, we ratify it either way, but we can submit right. it once it gets to a three fourths. So we can we can submit the amendment. Well, that's
0: a, a complicated issue,
1: um, but let's just say
0: that um,
1: the biggest reason
0: I think is because most liberals and most conservatives are afraid that the other side will control the process, yeah. and so that they will not agree to a constitutional convention, hmm. uh, e- even if uh, even if it went. No, I, I, it ain't gonna happen. But I do incur, I do encourage. Well, also Congress is gonna fight it. That it's not clearly defined what it takes to, to get a constitutional yeah, convention everything's going. everything's on
1: the table. Everything's on the right.
0: table. Right. Well, that's the fear, and that's why most liberals and most conservatives don't want to take that chance, and I don't think it's worth it either. I think we need a constitutional convention, but I don't think the people of America are ready yet, because we don't trust each other. Okay. If we can work together to pass a simpler one amendment mm-hmm. that will um, reform campaign finance by declaring that money's not speech, and that will we'll take, take away, away. this idea of corporate constitutional rights, if we can work on that, we can work on fighting NDAA, getting that uh, out, ending NSA spying, uh, ultimately ending the entire war of terror, which is nothing but a war for corporate domination of the planet. Um, If we can work together on those kinds of issues, then I think by by that point, people who now think of themselves as liberals and conservatives, or conservatives, I mean, will be able to talk to each other and realize that we have Common interests here, and, and the, but the, the most important interest we have together is establishing uh,
1: democracy, or more
0: precisely, a democratic republic in the United States.
1: I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. And now this will, this will come into my philosophical meanings. But um, when I, when I look at the way that I would like to see a society function, I think that a lot of people, even even if they're so-called um, a liberal person would would really understand the the philosophy behind anarchy and i 'm not talking about chaos and once again understanding what the verb means anarchy if you break it down what is what does archy mean? It means to have a pyramidal structure it means to have something to where there is a there is a top and there is a bottom so what would anarchy mean It means basically archy means rulers so if you have an oligarchy, you have a, a group of rulers. If you have a monarchy, you have one ruler. And if you have anarchy, what does that mean? You have no rulers. So everybody gets a fair shake. And so that's why I think that humanity will go eventually. It's kind of like what Thoreau said, that that um, that humans will, will eventually elect no government when they're ready for it. When they're ready mm-hmm. for it, they will accept no government whatsoever because... Then that way they're accepting themselves for their own personal for their own personal responsibility and accepting that if I go out and do something that that might be dangerous, like if I go out and shoot heroin and get in a car and I get in a wreck, then by all means you should be punished and you will be punished because there will be laws stating that you can't endanger somebody else in a in an altered state. Period. Point blank. Mm-hmm. Like the end. so.
0: Well, I, I understand that, and I think, uh, you know, again, we could do a whole show on it. But I, I agree with you. This should be our ideal. This should be where we're heading from. But the problem is too many people are authoritarian in their psychology, and they don't even know it, but they, they just believe there has to be some authority out there telling them what to do, and they're scared. It's frightening, the idea of being responsible for themselves. So people that talk about personal responsibility quite frequently give up. Their personal responsibility and become sheep or cattle um, <laughs> and, and a lot of a lot of these people, by the way, are fundamentalist Christians. when I look at what Jesus said, you know what the Jesus Bible said. Was an anarchist by everything he was an anarchist, of course, we take care of ourselves, and then Caesar can have what you know Caesar wants his fiat money <laughs> Caesar is not
1: getting my paycheck either. Well, he can have his fiat money. Render under him what is Caesar's. You know, we can take care of ourselves. Exactly, and, and thanks so much for bringing that up because I run into a lot of people like that that um, that really do. They want to. I, I don't know what it is. There, there is, a, and maybe it's the Prussian education that we go through. Maybe it's the classical conditioning that we go through through public education that conditions us to have this centralized authority. That we need somebody that was an authority figure. And that's why they switched to that model, and it really does—it really does yield to a great conversation that we'll probably have to do some other time because I, I could, and I'd love to get Josh to get on here, and we can all talk about this because the way that the educational model is set up, it used to be with the schoolhouse that you would have the, you would have kids of all ages in there, right? You would have the kid that would be, you know, five and six years old just learning how to, to read and write, and then you would have the kid that's about thirteen years old that's already been through all this stuff, learned science and stuff. So what happened? The 13-year-old would go and help the little 5- and 6-year-old. They'd help teach him how to write and teach him how to do things. So now he becomes a teacher. He starts to figure, figure out how to communicate better with, with people of different ages, and he starts to become a more well-rounded person. So now what we have are people that are walking around through life looking for people to tell them what to do. How many time, I can't tell you how many times in corporate America I've heard people say, I wish somebody would just tell me what to do. I wish somebody would tell me what to do. <laughs> Dude, make up your own mind. Grab the bull by the horns and go do something yourself. Well, I don't want to get in trouble. And then, once again, now you're into to the slave mentality of, there's an authority figure that's going to tell me what to do, and if I do something wrong, that I will be punished. So, it's it's a slave mentality versus a freedom mentality, and we just got to change it. So. That's it for the show, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Um, Rick, where can everybody check your stuff out here? You've been on here before, but I will put it in the show notes. I'll link to your Facebook page and I'll link to anything else. You got a website also, right? Yeah, Soldiers
0: for Peace International. You can Google it. Um, It's got a link to our Facebook page and a link to uh, my radio shows, SFPI Radio and Take Back America. Uh, What else? Uh, Of course, it has my blogs on it. it's it, that's that's mostly what it is it's it's,
1: it's <laughs> that is stuff by the way man i i see you turning out content all the time and and uh, from from somebody that tries to do this on a daily basis i can't tell you or i can't express to you how much i appreciate you turning out content the way that you do because it is difficult to to focus and try to get some really good um cogent um clear thoughts out there um whether they're for internet consumption or whatever so uh, kudos to you, my man. You're working really hard over there and trying to incite change, and, and that's all that we could ever hope for. So, Thanks. Well, that's it, everybody. Thanks for listening. Remember, get a friend, get informed, and get involved. Uh, check me out at We Are Not Cattle TV. Um, you will actually be able to see the video of Recognized Conversation up there probably sometime tomorrow. So thanks for listening, everybody. Share this podcast with people you know, people you like, and people that you want to get out of the status quo. Take care, everybody.
0: You deserve your freedom